This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 350 million people in America? Yeah, Is but like roughly? roughly a little less than half. I don't perceive yeah. that half of all people admit to being on TikTok, so that means a lot of you are secretly on TikTok. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor of the Goldwater Institute, and sometimes guest host of Politicology. Lucy, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you in person, Ron. (laughs) It's fun to get to do this together. Also returning to the roundup is Frank Sadler. Frank is the chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises. He also served as the campaign manager for Carly's 2016 presidential campaign and was an advisor to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia. Frank, welcome back. Always great to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys. On this week's Roundup, first, we will discuss the shooting at a private Christian school in Nashville. Next up, we'll discuss the influencers pressuring Congress to block a forced sale of TikTok. Then we'll dive into some of the latest public opinion data on federal spending, whether it's useful, and President Biden's attacks on Republican proposals for Social Security the same proposals Biden made in the Senate. Finally, our Politicology Plus subscribers are going to get a conversation about Donald Trump's first rally of his 2024 campaign in Waco, Texas. And yes, I did listen to the entire thing. To get ad-free access to the show, plus a catalog of additional episodes like the Politicology Plus conversation today, click the link in our show notes for politicology.com slash plus or navigate to the Politicology Show in the Apple Podcast app and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dive in right after this. On Monday, a shooter killed three nine-year-old students and three school employees, a substitute teacher, the head of the school, and a custodian, at a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. The shooter was found and shot by police about 14 minutes after the attack began. The police identified the shooter as 28-year-old Audrey Hale, a former student at the school who identified as transgender, used he-him pronouns, and had recently been using the name Aiden. National Police Chief John Drake confirmed to NBC News on Monday that Hale was trans, but did say that law enforcement is, quote, in the initial investigation into all of that and if it actually played a role into this incident. Police had not established a clear motive yet, but did say they believed a sense of resentment may have motivated the shooter. On Wednesday, Drake said that police had not found a specific problem or issue that the attacker had at the school. Drake also said that law enforcement had discovered a manifesto while searching Hale's home after the shooting. The notebook included a hand-drawn map of the school that included surveillance and entry points. Police also found additional handwritten material in Hale's car. They have not released the manifesto, but Drake did tell CBS Mornings that the shooter had left behind a drawing of the attack like a cartoon character. 
Chief Drake said that they believe the shooter specifically targeted the school, but did not specifically target any of the six people killed. He said that Hale had scouted another possible attack location in Nashville, but decided that there was too much security. Uh, police spokesperson Don Aaron told reporters on Tuesday that Hale's writings mentioned a mall near the school as a possible target. On Wednesday, Nashville council member and former Tennessee state director for the Trump campaign, Robert Swope, said that the shooter looked at attacking the other two schools, both of which were public. Swope said that Hale appears to have decided that the security was too great to do what she wanted to do and that Hale likely chose a private Christian school because there was less security. So then on Tuesday, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley wrote a letter to FBI Director for Chris Ray and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas calling on them to investigate this shooting as a hate crime. And then during Senate subcommittee hearing about the budget on Tuesday, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked whether he would open an investigation into a hate crime for the targeting of Christians. Garland said that the motive had yet to be identified, but that the FBI and ATF are working with local law enforcement to determine the motive, which is what determines, for the record, whether or not something is a hate crime. I had a conversation about hate crimes with Michael Masters from the Secure Community Network about uh, about what makes a hate crime a hate crime uh, back in September. We'll put a link in the show notes there if you want to go deeper on that. Since we still don't have a motive, we'd be making some assumptions, but it does seem reasonable to me to think that the shooter could have targeted the school because it was Christian, and that could have been motivated by the shooter being trans. So the question for the table is, how should the media and politicians be talking about the potential that this was a hate crime? There's been some controversy over how this has been covered recently. Lucy, do you have any thoughts? Well, I think in general, and I am not an expert in this, and these are tough, yeah, m- sort of uh, um, muddy waters, fraught. Um, fraught, frothy waters to wade into. But I think that probably we should both address this individual issue and then also hold in our minds that a lot of how we do or don't characterize crimes and the idea of hate crimes themselves is very much in the eye of the beholder. And the concept of hate crimes in and of itself, in my opinion, at times is not very useful and actually a distraction. A couple of things that we do know about this incident is that Audrey Hale, who no doubt is an individual who was in deep inner personal tumult, was an alum of this school. This is not a random Christian school. I think that a lot of people who are grappling with uh, issues around their own identity, um, and and I also want to separate whether yeah. or not Audrey Hill was trans from mental health issues, because right. I also think that those two things are getting lumped in. Yeah. So worth saying, there are lots of transgender Americans who don't have mental health issues, and you know, it goes without saying that far and away, the vast majority of transgender Americans do not engage in crimes. In yeah. fact, the opposite, right? Yeah. So so the, the same people making claims that, uh, oh, well, this is a hate crime against Christians have also been yeah. thrilled to jump on this of like a, look, transgenderism means that you're mentally ill and disordered and they're all, you know, shooters yeah. all of a sudden, yeah. which is despicable. Right. Also, the plural of anecdote is not data, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it is, it is, this is, um, Th- those those facts about Audrey Hale are, I guess, as relevant in some ways as, you know, any other fact about any other 
shooter's background, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. That said, I do think that, or with that said, yeah. I do think that it is very hard if we're going to stay down the hate crime path and decide was it or wasn't. It's very hard for me to see our way toward the hate crime piece, given that Audrey Hill went to that school. Mm. People do <laughs> shoot up their own schools in these situations, right? Or there's deep resentment around the experiences they had there. And you also could perceive, I don't know a lot about Covenant, but you also could perceive that if you are a person who is grappling with issues of identity, that you may have had a personal experience at a school like that, that, that would, and this is not at all justifying the shooting. I feel like I'm making all these caveats. I yeah. know that everyone knows. Yeah, everyone. I'm not. But it's, but it's important to say but, because the co the coverage has been very muddy. Yes. So, yeah. And so I don't feel ready to say that it's a hate crime. I tend to think that's a distraction. And I think that that would be a very different conversation had Audrey Hale not been an alum of this school. Yeah. Yeah. Frank, uh, I put the same question to you, but before you answer, I'm going to play you this clip from Tuesday when reporters asked President Biden about whether Christians were targeted in Nashville. Here's that exchange. So the remark was, in case you couldn't hear that very clearly, were Christians targeted? Josh Hawley says they were. What do you think? Biden says, well, I probably don't then, which came across quite crass and uh, and has uh, made the rounds, especially on uh, on right-wing media, but really all over. So um, I just add that layer to the controversy around the coverage, and I'd love to get your thoughts. Well, first off, the president you know, needs to do a better job communicating. Um, he knows that his staff knows that it's just, that is not a helpful comment in a time like this. Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, he was part of his, uh, reason to be elected was that he wasn't going to do what, uh, the prior administration did. And these are the type of comments that we would expect from, from somebody else. So that's really unfortunate. Um, but, you know, people make mistakes. And so it is what it is. It doesn't help given all the coverage, right? That's definitely true. I think back to your question about the coverage, we live in a world where of course they were going to talk about it this way, that that was just going to happen. And given what's been going on the last couple of years around um, the rights of uh, individuals across America, it was, it was going to happen. And none of it is particularly surprising at all. And I, I think it's appropriate that they talk about it, not because it is or isn't a hate crime, but we just live in a time where that's what people are going to talk about. And so if you avoid it, you're not really covering the issue fully. Whether or not we should focus on it is a different issue. And I do think that to Lucy's point, I think it is a very useful distraction for those on the right that don't want to do anything about the underlying issue, which is... There's been 370 plus school shootings since, you know, the turn of the millennium. And that's should not be acceptable, um, regardless of who's doing the shooting. And, you know, that's to me, I think the distraction is incredibly useful to those on the right. Um, and it's going to continue. It, it's always going to be something right other than the underlying issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to we should turn to 
okay, what do we do about this? Um, to me, every every time there's a school shooting, it almost it it's just it, there's a reflexive ban the guns call immediately in the aftermath of a shooting. Even it feels like while the bodies are still warm, and something about that troubles me and I don't quite know how to put it into words. Obviously we need to do something. Um, I don't know what it is, but I, so I want to talk about red flag laws for a minute. Uh, during a press conference Tuesday, chief Drake said that Hale was under a doctor's care for emotional disorder. Uh, but the law enforcement knew nothing about the treatment. Hale's parents believed there were no firearms in the home when in fact the shooter had purchased seven firearms, three of which were used in the shooting. Tennessee does not have a red flag law. We've talked about red flag laws before. Um, David French is a, is a big proponent of these laws. Uh, these are laws that allow a state court to order the temporary removal of firearms from a person who exhibits behavior that they could be a threat to themselves or others, including uh, family members, school officials, or local police. Um, after the Uvalde shooting, which we will all remember. French wrote a piece for the dispatch advocating for these. And after the shooting at a Buffalo grocery store, New York strengthened the red flag law to require law enforcement to petition for an extreme risk protection order in certain conditions and to expand the categories of people who could file for petitions to include, uh, for example, healthcare professionals. So uh, the, the question is, I, I'm really interested in your, your thoughts about the political chorus that always rises up in the aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of these shootings. Um, and what you think ought to be done, what we should consider doing, a red flag laws, the the right conversation to have in the aftermath of a shooting like this, where we know this would this is really a textbook example of how they would be used to stop a killing spree like this. Um, and then in general, how do you feel about that reaction, the immediate reaction to just ban the guns that just seems to pervade social media in the aftermath? So on the matter of the policy itself, I, I think that red flag laws are a good idea. Um, they're not a panacea. And the what you're describing about Audrey Hale and Audrey Hale's family, I, I don't know that it would have made a difference here. As you noted, Audrey Hale's family did not know that there were guns in the house. So in that scenario, if you have a family member who's really struggling or going through, um, they describe it as an emotional disorder, but going through a mental health uh, crisis, if you don't have any reason to believe that that person is going to go out and seek weapons, why would you go seek the use of, yeah. if you're, even if you're in a state with red flag laws? Yeah. I don't think that's realistic. And, and it also... Um, yeah, I, I, I yeah. just, I don't think that would, even if there had been red flag laws in Tennessee, uh, we would need bigger culture change to make yeah. those effective. And again, if you don't think that the person has guns or the desire to access guns, why would you pursue that? Yeah. On the other, well, also in the matter of reactions and the social media reaction, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of the Overton window, mm. which is the notion of asking for it and it, the the background of the Overton window as a concept is interesting. It, is it was interesting. actually a, a Michigan think tank called the Mackinac Center, their number two, whose last name was Overton, and he wound up 
dying a, a sort of in an, in an accident. And so people really coined this term because he would talk about this. But the Overton window is the idea that you just ask for a ton of stuff that is unreasonable, right? With the idea that then what you finally come upon, people will say, well, wow, they really made big compromises, even though the thing that you're actually asking for is totally unreasonable or whatever, but it starts to normalize then the thing that you really want as, as a compromise or as moderate. And I've been thinking about how much that seems to be happening on the topic of guns by both sides. And I I was thinking about this in the context, true, in, the, in like the backlash, in the immediate aftermath of these things, that also there's almost like this, um, we need mutual disarmament in the conversation because both lobbies kind of come out um, come out immediately, right? So you've got the good guys with the gun crowd immediately, and then you've got like the ban all guns, ban all guns immediately, people, yeah. which is really not how most people feel. But I also have been thinking about, and I think about this spectrum across a range of issues, mm -hmm. but including on this one, the spectrum of um, the from freedom and liberty to safety and security. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is showing up a lot more in this debate. I saw an interview this morning of Jared Moskowitz, who's a congressman, a Democratic congressman, and he's actually from Parkland. And so that's not his district, but he grew up there and he went to huh. that high school in Parkland. And so he was being interviewed by CNN and he was he was talking about how angry he is at his Republican counterparts who aren't doing enough and all this stuff. Obviously, deeply personal issue to him. And then he kind of tossed off this remark in this interview where he said, even I will keep fighting forever on this, even if we can pass a law that could just save one child, two child, like five children, like we need to pass that. Mm. That and that was, I think, applauded by the interviewer. Like, yes, yeah. let's Because who doesn't want to save children? Of course. Right. But that's actually a deeply frightening thing to say. Yeah. And before anyone says that I'm trying to kill kids, yeah. which I'm obviously not, yeah. what I'm, I mean by that is that suggests that you would just sort of do anything to lean into the, remember that, that yeah. spectrum yeah. of the yeah. freedom, liberty to safety and security, that you would lean so far to the safety and security that anything could be on the table. And that's right. that Democratic member's own Overton window. But we have to, I think, be really careful in, in our desperation to try to do something about this, getting down a road where we're making pronouncements about what should be done that are uh, not only not helpful, but a little worrisome, yeah. frankly. Yeah, I that's 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 kind of how I worry about it as well. Um, Frank, I'm interested in I'm interested in how you view the the reaction and uh, you know, especially as, um, you know, someone who has kids, how, do, how you think about this, but then also maybe you can, uh, explain a little bit of the, the power dynamics involved in this fight and why nothing, why, unfortunately we probably won't see very much action happen next. Yeah. So in terms of the reaction, I think we can't talk about the reaction as if it is the motive on that reaction is the same for everybody. Right. So I have a nine year old. Um, I don't use social media, but, um, you know, when you think about something like that, of what happened and you have a nine year old, which, uh, you know, a lot of Americans do or have around that age, like it's hard to not, um, 
want something to happen, um, regardless to Lucy's point, regardless of the ability to pass it, whether it's effective, whether it's constitutional, you know, in the wake of something like this happen, your immediate reaction, you know, could be something that's very uh, extreme, but it makes sense. Um, I think from a political standpoint, the truth is this, that the forces on the left and the right are pushing both to the extremes. And that is for a variety of reasons, fundraising being near the top, um, primaries being close to the top. And so it's why we don't get solutions to the big, big problems that this country faces. We'll talk about another one of those big problems later. And that to me, it's like we can talk about whatever solutions we want, whether it's red flag laws, whether it's um, assault weapons ban, whatever it is. It, the truth is, is that there's Congress isn't going to act on anything particularly meaningful, regardless of what those things may be, because they're in no position to do that. This, it's just the system's not set up right now to do that. Um, and it's unfortunate. I think, again, we're going to talk about another issue like TikTok, but I look at its state's responsibility to figure this stuff out because they have a better chance of doing it. It's not perfect, but the political incentives at the state level are not as extreme as they are at the federal level. And so I think folks on the on the left, I would advise them that they need to take their focus to the states. I think they're spending a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to get something jammed through Congress year after year, year. that just isn't going to happen. And I yeah. think it's a waste of energy and resources. Yeah. Something that has come up this week, and actually uh, there was a great piece that came out in the Washington Post on Tuesday morning, uh, is about what was a, a piece about the AR-15. Mm-hmm. And and how and and sort of how insane and enthusiastic we've gotten about owning AR-15s and weapons like that, and I think that talking about those pieces of this as opposed to the ban all guns, which I know is not really what mainstream Democrats or mainstream Americans are saying, yeah. but it is it's what rises to the top. Thinking about you know people can remember where they were especially people who were under 40 and were in school when the Columbine shooting yeah. happened. I mean, it was so yep. stunning. I, I remember uh, a school PE teacher talking to us about it. It was just everyone was, I was still in school. It was gripped by this. And that is, I guess if you're under 30 or if you're under 20, that seems like ancient history because it's before you were around right. or aware but there are still a lot of Americans, including people in their 30s and 40s, who remember a time where we didn't have where this wasn't school the thing. shootings yeah. all the time, yes. right? And so it would be lovely to see uh, groundswell develop a little bit on not not to get down the road of being like, it was better before, right? Yeah. But like, what are the things that actually have changed? Yeah. Why is it that the U.S. seems to have this problem that other countries don't. And where could we fall on that spectrum that could yeah. actually get us somewhere? I totally agree with Frank that I always want to see state solutions. I do think that this is a little bit of a tricky one because as we know, uh, people can buy guns in yeah. one state and cross state lines. But I, I do think that if we could take the temperature down a little bit, and yeah. I understand I'm not a parent yeah. 
and I understand how personal this feels for communities, but that could be a way to make some inroads. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's but part of the issue, uh, but right. Like yeah. if you look at the polling, right. On banning high capacity magazines and the assault weapons ban, they're very popular, right? We're talking yeah. 60, 65% support. But if you dive into a congressional district in, you know, pick, you know, anywhere out of suburbia and urban America, right? Those numbers drastically drop. And so I think part of this is we look at these national polling numbers and the way this country is dispersed. I don't think that is representative of what polling would look like if we went district by district by district. And that's the problem is I think we just think that there's this groundswell for these, what I would view as reasonable things to do. I support the assault weapons ban. To me, that makes sense. And so you go on CNN or you, you know, go and meet the press and you say 65% of Americans support assault weapons ban. We should pass it tomorrow. But, but then you go look at 207 members of Congress and in their districts, it is not a 65% issue at all. And, and that's why I agree with Lucy. Like if you're in New York, there's, you know, very strict gun laws. But as we know, to Lucy's point, and she's absolutely correct, is there's just a flow of guns into New York from other states that don't have similar laws. So my idea of using the states is not a perfect way to do it. But, you know, it has been twenty, almost 20 years since the assault weapons ban expired, and we've never gotten even close to getting it reinstated. So, like, I'm kind of done with worrying about what Congress is going to do. There, there are weirdly a lot of themes and the things we're going to, we are talking there about are. and are going to talk about today that show up in these, yep. in these yep. issues that feel disparate, but are kind of, yeah, unfortunately the same. Yeah. That, unfortunately <laughs> the same. And it's, uh, I think listeners to the show have started to pick up on themes because we're not choosing them. They just are that way. And one of those things is going back to Frank's comment earlier about, fundraising being one of the primary drivers of the reactionaryism uh, in the aftermath is is both absolutely cynical and absolutely true at the same time. That, and that effective. And effective, right? And, and effective. And, and effective. Terribly effective. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it, people might be sitting there thinking, oh, well, that's just a terrible way to view. No, that is, that's actually the reality. If you follow the money and you follow the incentives, it's, it becomes pretty obvious. Um, uh, okay. Let's, let's leave it there for now and um, move on to our next topic. Last week, TikTok CEO Sho Chu made his first appearance before Congress at a House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing. CNN reported that Chu was grilled by lawmakers who were skeptical about TikTok's attempts to protect U.S. user data and its ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Congress is currently considering multiple laws that would allow for the federal government to ban TikTok in the United States. A couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration gave TikTok an ultimatum to sell the app or face a ban. Now, TikTok doesn't operate in China. The app isn't available in mainland China. There's a sister app for the Chinese market. TikTok is headquartered in Los Angeles and Singapore, but its parent company, ByteDance, is based in China, and the Chinese government has immense power over business under its jurisdiction. So, ByteDance, and thus TikTok, could be forced to cooperate with a broad range of security activities, including the possible transfer of TikTok data. The CCP has greater control over ByteDance through its control of a, quote, golden share of the company. So the Financial Times reported last year 
that the Cyberspace Administration of China, otherwise known as the CAC, connected uh, it's a connected fund joined two other state groups to purchase a one percent stake in ByteDance in 2021. But that one percent stake came with the right to nominate one of the three members of ByteDance's board. The board seat went to a Communist Party official who had previously called for, and I quote, Chinese traders preaching so-called human rights and freedom to go to hell. Seems like a swell guy uh, that I'd want controlling my data. But as Chu was in the hot seat in Congress, TikTok paid influencers to make their case in the media and on the app. And the people on TikTok thought Congress was pretty lame. Uh, But the sentiment was that Congress was out of touch and because they're not tech experts, they don't get to make decisions about regulation. I saw a flood of um, memes, Instagram stories on my social media. Uh, <laughs> this is this is going to be kind of funny. So lots of DC gays on my Instagram, as you might suspect. So many of them were posting things like, if you don't understand Wi-Fi and you don't know how to turn a Word document into a PDF, then you don't get to ban things. Okay, that was basically the sentiment that I saw floating around. My otherwise very fairly smart social circle, I was shocked by this. What I think they would be shocked by is that ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, owns another app that they probably use all the time. You know what that app is? Grinder. Yes. Which means, gays, the Chinese Communist Party might have your nudes. So, okay, Lucy, <laughs> going back to the argument... Uh, that they're making here. The Congress is out of touch and lame and they don't get, they're not smart enough to figure this out. (sighs) What do you make of that? I thought it was interesting when uh, one of the Democratic members on the committee told the CEO of TikTok that he was sort of uniquely, he was unusually uniting the Republicans and Democrats on the committee. And then they told him that he reminded, some of them said that he reminded them of, of Mark Zuckerberg in 2018. But what I think a lot of people felt like that committee hearing reminded them of some of the Zuckerberg hearings over the years, which is this tension that comes up that is so awkward. And it goes to what should our expectation be of these of these yeah. members, because we don't elect people to be subject matter experts. But on the other hand, they are unusually ill-equipped to to really understand and distill these concepts from from what I've seen. And that's a problem for obvious reasons, but some of the problems include the fact that what they decide to do about threats like this, to the degree that they even identify these threats, and I think that they're about to make similar errors around all kinds of technology like artificial intelligence and more, but they tend to do a couple of things. One, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So there's this assumption that you need a big federal bill to solve this. And in this case, one of the big federal bills that some of them think would solve it uh, is 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 a bipartisan bill yeah. that is sponsored by Mark Warner and John Thune called the Restrict Act yeah. and is scary. Yeah. And it is to me, it is scary. It is a scary bill. It's a yeah. bill that says uh, uh, the Commerce Department would get to review foreign technology and ban it. That may sound like a good idea to like parents who are worried about TikTok or people who are worried about who's getting what data. To me, that is like Patriot Act vibes. Correct. That is like to go back to like the spectrum, right, of the freedom and liberty versus safety and security. The other thing that inevitably happens 
with everything that Congress does around this stuff and, and lawmakers generally at many layers of government is that they tend to pass legislation or seek solutions that are very, very tailored to whatever the situation is right then. And there's this idea of lagging regulations, mm-hmm. right? So today it's TikTok, tomorrow it's something that we don't know or understand at all. I tend to think that a lot of the focus, and I, you and I have an ongoing conversation, a years-long conversation about <laughs> what to do about TikTok, but I tend to think that a lot of this conversation needs to shift to culture yeah. and and culture uh, around individuals' expectations of how their data is used. One final thing I just want to ask. Yeah. One of the things that the TikTok CEO said in testimony is that TikTok has 150 million yes. active users in the U.S. Yes. I found that that seemed really high to it me. It does seem very high seems to me really too, high. but I checked into it before this podcast because it sounded yeah. high. And from what I can tell, it's real. Like that's, that's how wild. popular it is. That's yeah. wild because I don't think that it has- 350 million people in America? Yeah, but like roughly? roughly a little less than half. I don't perceive yeah. that half of all people admit to being on TikTok. So that means a lot of you are secretly on TikTok. I think a lot of people are secretly on TikTok. Uh, Frank is secretly on TikTok. He says he's not on social media. He is on TikTok all the time. So I will say I will say one thing before Frank illuminates us here, which is that John Seifer, who's a frequent guest on the pod, uh, ran Rush Operations at the CIA for 20 years, uh, 25 years. Uh, told me explicitly, do not download TikTok. Yeah. Like, do not download Don't that download app. it. Don't download it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think, I th- I think, Frank, that one of the things that's getting lost in the conversation, especially in the conversation on social media, is not, there, there is the privacy access right here, which Lucy is um, highlighting, which I think is really important. And people, I don't think, have a good relationship to what happens with their data as they're right, they're they, they're not informed consumers about uh, how apps are using their data, or if they if they roughly understand that their data is being siphoned off every second, uh, they don't care, right? And that's fine. They that that's possible. But what's getting left out here is how this app can be used by a foreign adversary to manipulate public opinion with its algorithm and what it what it chooses to. Uh, amplify on its platform. So if you think about this in those terms, TikTok suddenly becomes a very, very scary thing. So it is should be no wonder that uh, people all over TikTok got up in arms about the possibility of banning TikTok because a lot of that content was almost certainly amplified by, guess who? TikTok. So this is one of the things, especially as we think about election security and integrity, especially as we think about... Um, I mean, all all the ways that public opinion drives politics now in our populist uh, era, increasingly populist era. This is one part of the conversation, I think, that isn't breaking through on social media itself. And um, so, Frank, I lay, we lay all of this at your feet. <laughs> what, what, what should we do about TikTok? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. I think when we talk about TikTok, we need to separate it from social media, right? So the, there are problems with social media that we all know about, um, that we worry about regardless of the platform, right? Whether it's Instagram or Facebook or TikTok that involve, you know, disproportionately seems to involve children. But I think from a mental health standpoint, I think the truth is it's not just a problem for children. So there's this social media problem. 
I think that's completely separate. Not that TikTok doesn't have exactly those same problems, but to your point, Ron, there's this national security piece. And so uh, I am, I'm comfortable with national security experts advising Congress about the risk that TikTok poses to our national security, given where the ownership lies. I think that is completely within um, what we expect from the federal government. It's very clear. And uh, um, if you think about this going the other direction, so the, um, the federal government has a committee set up when we move ownership of something that has national security uh, importance from the United States to another country, that's called CFIUS. We don't have to go into CFIUS, but we're incredibly comfortable. I've never run into a lot of people who have a problem with the way CFIUS works. I have no problem with the federal government using a system like CFIUS, a committee like CFIUS, to advise them on certain things that are coming to the United States um, from uh, ownership groups that are not allies of ours or not domestic. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. And I think from a TikTok standpoint, I'm not a national security expert, but if folks in that world believe that this is a threat, Congress needs to act. And I think they will act. I think the, you know, this hearing was theater. I think, you know, the majority of these members have made up their mind. Now they'll figure out, I think the way to, you know, they'll come up with a way to do this. I don't know exactly if it'll be a ban, if they'll force a sell-off. I, I don't really know. Um, but I'm pretty sure in election year, this is going to happen, right? It's in, between now and November of 2024, they're going to do something about this. What they're not going to do anything about, just to be really clear, anything about social media, right? So all the other part of this committee hearing, when they talk about the effect that TikTok has on our children or on anyone in America, I assure you, Congress will do nothing when it comes to that because that impacts a bunch of companies in the United States who have the most powerful lobby that we've seen in a very long time. And, and it, lets, it, it lets me get to one other point I just want to raise about, about the idea about members of Congress not being equipped to handle these issues. First off, that to me is just not worth discussing in the sense of we ask them to regulate all sorts of things that they have no um, built-in uh, education about or knowledge about, right? The banking system, for example, is incredibly complex, complex but we expect them to regulate that. And we've expected that for almost a hundred years. This is where the lobbying piece comes in. One of the things I think a lot of people don't understand about lobbying is that we think it's always this one way direction where lobbyists are going to the Hill saying, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. But what's really going on a lot of the times is members of Congress and really their staff, let's be clear this, going the other direction. So they're going from Capitol Hill to K street saying, Hey guys, could somebody over there tell me a little more about an algorithm? Or could somebody over there tell me a little about how this works? And that, um, that combination leads us to thinking that lobbying is always this negative thing. The truth is, is Congress relies on lobbyists, like it or not, to educate them and their staff on these very complex issues because lobbyists are by definition, experts in the field that they are representing. Yes, that is so uh, un misunderstood, uh, vastly misunderstood, I think, by the majority of people. Um, Lucy has something to say. Well, it's funny because I often think about 
this when when people bring up this yeah. tiny aside when people bring up term limits like yeah. term we just need term limits term limits it's like we already have a situation <laughs> where we have lawmakers really really reliant on outside experts yeah. staff lobbyists that like for all the reasons that Frank is describing I'm open to term limits, but it's like one of those things where be careful what you wish for, actually, right? <laughs> yep. Do you want to have, you want to make them even more, even more dumb, reliant like even more, on people that are yep. not elected, right? Yep. Who are in the background. Yep. Um, so it is, it's, yep. it's, it's another one of those, um, the ecosystem is, uh, is, uh, more complex than yeah. is often understood. Yeah. And uh, be careful what you wish for. Very, very much. What's the um, what's the what's the old colloquialism about uh, not removing the fence until you understand what it's there for? Uh, Chesterton's fence. Have you ever heard of this? <laughs> no. Uh, I won't. I won't bore you the details. But the but the point is, uh, if you come across a fence in the middle of a road, like crossing a road, and you're like, well, "I got to take the fence down," right? Never take a fence down until you understand why it's there in the first place. That's the, that's the principle, essentially. Until you can articulate the reason that it's there in the first place, you shouldn't take it down. So, anyway, that's uh, a good mental model. Um, uh, I, I, okay, we should leave this topic, uh, but I do want to say just as it relates to China, I, have, I had a long drive over the weekend. I binged the, uh, the Economist podcast series, The Prince, oh. which is a masterpiece of, of journalism. Um, and I am now hooked on the, the, another, a sister podcast that they're doing called drum tower, which is a weekly really, really fascinating look into the person of Xi Jinping. And it is helping me to understand China in a brand new way. And so going back to bite dance, if you think for one moment that this is a private company that is also going to try and withhold this data from the Chinese company, you are delusional. Um, ByteDance even admitted uh, to using TikTok to track and spy on journalists. Um, a member of TikTok's trust and safety department said, uh, "Everything, quote, everything is seen in China uh, in leaked audio from from, from the company." So, um, if you if you if you are in the camp that doesn't think that the U.S. government should ban TikTok, then at least. Um, Go and understand exactly what's at stake here before you have a knee-jerk reaction to someone taking your toys away. Ron's staring straight at me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll leave it there. On Wednesday, the AP and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research released polling data showing that there's been a significant... Uh, movement among U.S. adults who believe the government is spending too much. In February of 2020, about 37% of adults said the U.S. government is spending too much on the whole. That's risen now to 60%. However, mirroring the fighting over potential budget cuts in Washington, there's no broad consensus about what to cut. Respondents said the government wasn't spending enough money on big-ticket items like education, healthcare, Social Security, Medicare, border security. (sighs) This is part of the environment... Uh, that made it so easy for President Biden to get Republicans to pledge not to cut Social Security or Medicare spending during that State of the Union moment that went viral. Uh, About 70% of respondents uh, in this survey said that the U.S. spends too much on assistance for other countries. Um, They probably don't know that the foreign aid budget makes up less than 1% of federal spending. Um, 
this new polling data fits with the broader context that we've seen over the last few months that the overall spending is too much, but voters don't want to see individual programs cut. This is this is just how public opinion on budget and spending has always been, really. Uh, but we're talking about numbers that are so big, right? People don't have a frame of reference. So this is my problem with this with the, with this study with this line of inquiry. Uh, like people can't tell you what twenty five billion dollars in funding for ICE means or the CBP or or they can't tell you what what do you get for four point nine billion dollars in grants for state and local law enforcement to enhance public safety. They can't tell you what that means. These numbers are just inaccessible. And part of my frustration with how budget taxes spending are covered in the media is that it is so superficial and uh and in it's done in a way that doesn't really give you access to what's what what these numbers mean they're just unfathomably large uh so um i, I that that's my answer to how useful this is for making public policy decisions but do you think lucy frank that um this polling is um instructive in any way well actually when I said there are so many of these themes popping up throughout these throughout these topics, what I was thinking about anticipating talking about this came to mind when Frank was talking about um, federal versus state. When I saw these poll results, I felt a little taken aback by them. Mm. And I thought, oh, it, they must have been asking about government on the whole, like all layers of government not just the federal government. But no, actually, these are questions that are specifically about the federal government and federal government spending. So for example, 65% of Americans say that the federal government is spending too little on education. I don't think anyone has any sense of what that means. Because in fact, federal education spending is a very, very small part of education spending. Yeah. For example, in a state that spends less than other states, that is like toward the bottom of the list of sort of like funding per pupil yeah. in the area of education, the federal government pr- proportion of that spend is like 10%. Yeah. That's in a state where the state and local governments are not spending very much on edu- education. That means that in a state that spends a lot on education, like New York or California, that would be an even smaller percentage. Yes. And so I actually don't think that when people answer this, they mean that they want to see the Department of Education spend more money. They're just thinking about like, oh, I wish there were more school supplies <laughs> yeah. in my in yes. my fifth graders classroom. Yes. Or like, I wish that like the the teacher to student ratio were different. Yep. Those are not things that are Those going to be absolutely sold, sold nothing to do by the federal government. <laughs> with the question. And and so it's that's problematic that we that this is like, I guess I'm in favor of more education spending on civics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then also you the other theme that pops up again here is to Frank's earlier point about members of Congress and looking at um, district specific data and and perceptions is in the area of military spending, like I have wanted to cut military spending my whole my whole <laughs> life, but every every member of Congress has some piece of pork, right? Yep. That is yep. military pork in their district. So we're not ever going to cut m- military yep. spending in a meaningful way because everybody is getting yep. their little saucer of milk, <clears throat> and that's why you end up with this really fundamentally yep. problematic dynamic of people saying. Every we're spending too much. Oh, except don't cut the thing that I like. Yes. 
<laughs> don't cut the thing that I like. Go ahead, Frank. No, I I completely agree with Lucy on this. I think the polling is not uh, instructive, particularly. I think yeah. Yeah. we know this is a problem, uh, meaning the deficit is a problem, right? I think how you solve this is the real question. And I think, unfortunately, is um, unlike their discussion around guns, we know how to solve this problem, right? We This is not something new. We, we actually have... We had a wonderful group of folks in, what was it, 2010 um, on the Bull Simpson Commission, right? Like, we yep, have ways to exactly handle right. this thing. We need leadership in both parties who are going to come together and and take the solutions from that commission and execute. Now, Political I don't courage. actually think, that's right. I actually don't think that's going to happen for a variety of reasons. Part of it is the big spending, the the things that you really have to tackle, and uh, Bull Simpson points this out, right, are are three things that are probably not really going to happen. One that Lucy brought up, which is, which is military spending, and then second is Medicare and, and Social Security. And yeah. it is just not uh, politically um, suitable these days to make the necessary adjustments to those three um, parts of the federal budget. And it's just... It is just too easy to um, demonize your opponent when they suggest yeah. those things. Things as simple as raising the Social Security age, right, which could make it a, a really, um, really big difference in the solvency of that program over many years. It, yeah. It's really hard to do that if you're facing re-election. And so, again, I, this is the one where we've got the solutions. We just don't have any political courage or leadership to do anything about it until I worry until we get to a point where we're, we're not going to be making these decisions ourselves. We're just going to be put in a position where we will have to start cutting or or drastically raising taxes to cover our expenditures. Yeah. Yeah. I want to make two, two quick points. One, one about political courage and leadership on the issue, but then the other one, I think we should take a moment to explain to people why we should care about the deficit in the first place, because you you and I and Lucy understand why we need to care about the deficit and why it's a problem that needs to be addressed. But I think most Americans don't. I think they don't really understand what a large federal deficit means. The first one on leadership uh, has to do with the CNN report from Tuesday, which I was not aware of, that President Biden himself once introduced a proposal in 1975 that would have sunsetted funding for all federal programs unless they were reauthorized by Congress, without an exception for Social Security and Medicare. Let that sink in. Biden's bill was actually the first so-called federal sunset bill. Uh, And in case all of this is sounding familiar, it is remarkably similar to the proposal that Florida Senator Rick Scott put forward last year that he was derided for, including by Biden. Uh, Democrats put enough pressure on Scott that he actually uh, added an exception uh, for Social Security and Medicare to his Plan to rescue America. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, let, let me just push back a little. Um, yeah. The political dynamics in 1975, in 1985, and 1995 are have nothing remotely anything to do with what's going on politically today, right? If you think back to the dynamics of, let's just use Congress as the example of, I agree how, with you. of how folks interacted in 75 and 85, it would be completely reasonable to suggest 
that Congress could come together on a regular basis and do something like yes. zero-based budgeting, starting over. Yes. Because you could see them coming together to do that. That is a ludicrous yes. idea to think. Yes, that if it we, is. <laughs> however, se- however, separate the politics from the substance here and the policy, Social Security Medicare are not any more solvent today than they were in 1975. As a matter of policy... This is this makes more sense now and is more urgent now than it was perhaps then. Although the politics allowed for you to have the discussion then, yeah. And I think I think it could have actually worked then. I I, I guess my point is is that I don't think it's a good policy to do that this time. Like I think you really would because run into you'd run into a real problem very quickly because you wouldn't get things reauthorized. So really oh, sunsetting. Yeah. I see. Sunsetting. Sunsetting. Yeah, you'd have to reauthorize it, right? Yeah, so they would all become political footballs all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'd run into these. Let's just use the term fiscal cliffs all the time. Yeah, that are not yeah. good. Right? Go talk to CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Like fiscal cliffs are, you know, and we're getting yeah. close to one, right? Or we're going to hit one sometime this year. Those are terrifying yeah. for these folks who are trying to figure out how to make payroll. And so yeah. I just think that's not a useful thing. That's And if you go look at the Bowles-Simpson Commission, that was not one of yep. their suggestions, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, do you think politics, they did this in 2005, well, Biden did it in 2005 too, advocated for raising the retirement age. The politics today are still vastly different from what we had in 2005, but not as different as 1975. The The... I think that I think the big point here is that we do have a fiscal problem and a monetary problem. Uh, and what I fear is that that reality isn't being well articulated by either party because because nobody, to your point, is interested in actually doing anything about it because it's too politically painful. But we do have a big challenge here. And I think we talked about this a few weeks ago uh, during the during the debt ceiling crisis when that first started to percolate, which which is that like the risk is eventually the interest that we owe on our debt is going to consume the amount of money that we have available to spend every year, and once it reaches a certain point, we will hit what is called a debt spiral. <laughs> And we will be forced to make cuts to things that we want to spend money on instead of having the discretion to cut them willingly. We will just have to do it because we have to service the debt. And that's the reason that we're having this conversation in the first place. And I think, I think the, the consequences for ordinary Americans of that happening have not really been articulated by anybody. Well, both parties really do rely on each other in this way. And I think that Republicans today in Congress are much more willing to play fast and loose with um, debt ceiling. But both parties rely on each other when you think about the balance between um, uh, uh, spending and then um, revenue, right? And and funds available to fund Mm -hmm. the spending. So they're in this kind of this unspoken pact where Republicans are like, oh my God, this is all so irresponsible. But they actually don't want to end the spending programs, right? And then Democrats are saying, like, we have to preserve these programs because that – and that means we have to raise more revenue. And that's why we need to tax rich people more. But most of them actually also don't want to do that, right? Right. So they they really do – they don't work together on much, but they are really, <laughs> really good real at spending together. <laughs> together on on this. Yeah. Um, 
because because especially members of Congress who are up for re-election every two years yeah. and this feeling that people are are feeling these vacillations in their districts. Yeah. It it's it's a it is a hot potato that is not good for not good for anyone. And every year that goes by that there's yes. more and more of this, we are closer and closer to that precipice yeah. where we will not be able to solve it by uh raising the debt ceiling and you know, stave off another we it's happened before, like yeah. stave off another credit um rating downgrade. We're gonna get to yep. the point where we're not able to do that. Or our money is just going to become meaningless. And I think that as people have experienced the recent inflationary period and thinking about interest rates becoming more like how they used to be, these are some of the downstream effects yeah. of, of of this unsustainable situation that we're in. Yes. I uh, this I have a juicy look ahead for today and that is actually really relevant to this topic. So I I move that we pivot to look aheads and I will just lead off here and then uh, and then I'll go to you guys. I want to tell you a quick story about interest rates and the Fed, the central bank of the United States, which is that uh, as of September of 2022, I believe I'm getting that date right. Um, the Fed is going to be operating at a loss for the first time in modern history. I don't think anybody understands what that means, and I think this will go very underreported. But here's what it means. The Fed, Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, basically operates like every other bank, except that um, it has it's a pseudo-partnership with the United States government, right? So how does the bank make money? It takes, it takes depositors, your money, and then it turns around and lends them to somebody else and tries to make money on the interest. Okay. In order for a bank to remain solvent, it's assets has to have to be higher than its liabilities. Okay. See also SVB bank failure, right? And that saga. The Federal Reserve Bank operates by the same principles. Its assets have to be higher than its liabilities. The Federal Reserve Bank actually makes money every year on its assets. Well, the Federal Reserve Bank isn't allowed to keep the profit that it makes like every other bank. What does it do with the profits? It pays the U.S. federal government. It pays the treasury the money that it makes any leftover profit. Well, if it's operating at a loss, it means that there is no more money to pay the federal government. Those remittances every year end until the Fed is profitable again. Part of the reason they're not profitable and they've just gone and uh, operating uh, negative, negative equity is because of these interest rate hikes, right? So the assets on their books uh, are not yielding as much revenue as they would ordinarily have been if the interest rates were lower. So they're kind of a victim of this rate hike cycle that they've created. Okay, what does this mean? It means that, well, uh, when, the, when they start making money again, they're going to get to pay themselves back. So they get to carry all those losses that they've booked as an asset, essentially, because they get to, they get to backfill all the would-have-been profit from that time. But the big punchline here is the amount of money that the Treasury usually receives on an annual basis from the Federal Reserve Bank, which is about $100 billion in remittances. Between 2010 and 2022, about a trillion dollars is what they sent to the U.S. federal government. To give you some perspective, since money doesn't feel real to people and these numbers are so large, the annual budget of NASA is $25 billion. So we're talking four NASAs worth of funding that the U.S. government is no longer getting as an automatic revenue stream from the Federal Reserve Bank. This amount, this $100 billion, is automatically going to be added to the deficit every single year 
and nobody's going to say boo about it. That's my look ahead. But we will continue to borrow. Um, and I guarantee you, nobody's going to want to talk about this. So. How, uh, how uplifting, Ron. That was wonderful. <laughs> I'd yeah. love I'd love to let you know that I just I just flipped back to that poll and yeah. 39% of Americans think we're spending too much on space exploration. <laughs> so we might have to find a better a better unit than 4X Fair. NASA, but Fair. we'll 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 workshop it. Okay, we'll work, we'll, we'll work on that. What do you got? <laughs> so as people know, I am a big proponent of structural reforms to democracy. So things like ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, something that, and I don't think it's the whole solution. I think it's part of a solution. I think it helps us start to climb out of the hole a little bit of our polarization, but I don't think it's a panacea. But something that has happened that is really coming now much more aggressively, sort of ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was kind of like wacky, right? No one really took it seriously. And then it started to build up some momentum. And now suddenly we're seeing, as we see states having success with it, states like Maine or Alaska, we're also now seeing, and a whole bunch of states are introducing these reforms, but suddenly the opposition to these reforms is really strong. And and just in the last few weeks, we've seen states uh, move to do things like ban ranked choice voting. So South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem signed a that. bill banning ranked choice voting. Whoa. And of course, look, someone could repeal it. Yeah. But uh, this is, is happening in other states. Ranked choice voting, which in Connecticut, which actually had been endorsed by Democratic Governor Ned Lamont, failed in committee this week. And that was a that was a positive forward um, thinking bill as opposed to these bans. But but it, it failed in part because the lobbies against it are becoming so strong and so organized. In Arizona, which everyone knows has a special place in my heart, in Arizona, there have been plans to put a ranked choice voting, open primaries, nonpartisan primaries, ballot initiative on the ballot. And Arizona is a progressive era state and uh, where there's a, a big tradition of voter participation yeah. and also something called the Voter Protection Act, which means that anything that the voters pass at the ballot box cannot be repealed by the legislature, legislature. Wow. it's virtually impossible, right? You have to go back to the voters for authorization. This can be good or bad. But in this case, I think, good, great, exciting, going to be a citizen initiative, pass ranked choice voting, very, you know, that's popular. Voters want that. They've, yeah. they've started to see it. This week, the Arizona legislature, uh, via crazy right-wingers, actually, <laughs> uh, neither party likes these reforms, but Republicans yeah. especially don't. Yeah passed a a ballot referral. So also it would functionally feel like the same as an initiative, like another ballot question, which will now appear on the Arizona um, ballots, people's ballots next year, that would ban ranked choice voting and Whoa. these reforms. So they're setting up a scenario where there's like incredible confusion, wow. right? Where voters are going to go and there's going to be a ballot referral put on the ballot by the legislature saying, ban this reform. And then God willing, there will also be a ballot initiative saying like, this reform is wonderful. It's obviously intended to sow confusion, yeah. right? But also it, it has really high stakes yeah. because of the fact that it's voter protected. So you're already seeing actually border states, more really big battles coming already booked for November of 2024. 
in my home state of Arizona, in your home state of yeah. Nevada, over these reforms. And I think that it's it's a reminder to me that anyone who has even a passing interest in this as yeah. a structural reform should get involved in keeping yeah. up to date on what's going on in their state yep. around ranked choice voting because it's starting to be active and the dynamics are different everywhere. But it's the kind of thing we often talk about, you know, like don't anchor to candidates, right? Like anchor Correct. to causes, anchor yes. to system change. This is one of those things that it's just, it's it, it was percolating and now it's really it's live. bubbling, boiling. It's, it's, something, it's something to keep an eye on across okay. the country. This is so good. Um, I, now I need to go find out what Nevada's doing. Well, Nevada has to reauthorize the initiative that they passed yeah. last year. But my question is, for those two initiatives that you just mentioned in Arizona, are they going to be on the same yeah. election date? Or uh -huh. are they going to be... Oh, they are. Yes. And I've been wondering to wow. myself, I'm, I'm getting a briefing about this in, in a few weeks, but I've been wondering... What would happen if both? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What would happen if both? Passed? When I ran an initiative years ago, um, in 2010, and there were a bunch of um, very popular initiatives on the ballot at the time, and I was running one of them, and opponents of it basically decided that their only chance of beating back these initiatives was to run a campaign, and in in fact, including sacrificing an initiative that they wanted to see passed, was to run a campaign where they just put up signs and TV ads telling voters to vote no on everything. And so were these, mm. <laughs> there were these signs and billboards all over in that cycle that just said, vote, just no, vote, on, no, on vote no on everything. And they were actually prepared to like, to sacrifice the one initiative that they actually wanted to see passed in wow. service of defeating the others. It didn't work, but it's a reminder of how on ballot initiatives, especially they don't get much attention. And yeah. I'm, I'm saying initiatives to loose, loosely mean referrals or yeah. ballot questions. They don't get a lot of attention. It's hard to make them wedge issues in campaigns. And so they're really susceptible to um, and, confusion and and, and misinformation. And many voters make up their minds about them at the last minute when they yeah. read them for the first time in the ballot box and don't really understand what's And it's stake. hard to understand because yeah. usually it's like, yeah. we're going to yeah. change this obscure piece yeah. of state statute. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you want democracy? Get informed. <laughs> get informed. Frank, what do you got? Um, so similarly, in terms of uh, at the state level, Utah passed a, a sweeping bill on social media recently signed by uh, Governor Spencer Cox. And not, not to get into specifics, but it um, is really about um, putting in safeguards for minors uh, and giving parental control over uh, these social media apps. And I think what's interesting about what, what I look forward to watching to see what happens is um, if you are these, you know, big social media companies, I, you, you know, this is the wake up call that like you had your chance to do something about this. You didn't. And so people are going to step into this. And especially I think at the state level where it's, as we talked about earlier, a little easier to get things done. Um, I don't know enough. I'm not a lawyer to know if this, if the bill that uh, Governor Cox passed is going to stand up in court. But it will be interesting to see if the social media companies look at this and say, hey, we better get something done so that we don't see this, you know, sweep across uh, the United States. It's, it's, you know, Utah, it's, Utah's not California. You know, California has a, a rich history of doing things that then influence corporate America, right? You look at this in the automobile industry a lot, right? Like, so a lot of the mileage standard stuff start in California and so many cars get sold in California that 
they just end up having to do it, even if there's no national framework, because the car company is like, well, if we got to sell that many cars in California, we probably just do adopt the California rules and just do it everywhere because it's cheaper. Um, Utah obviously doesn't have that influence, but I think it'll be interesting to see if the social media companies look at it and say, well, if Utah does this, now does Florida do this? Does Texas do this? And then maybe they will actually step up and say, yeah, we, we probably need to do something about the 18 and under because they are not happy with the bill that the governor signed. Um, as a parent, I think, you know, I think there are reasonable things that are in this bill um, and gives a lot more authority to parents over, you know, what we're finding out is a fairly toxic, um, you know, I, I don't know what to use, what term to use, but, you know, we're happy to have parental control over cigarettes and alcohol and have the government step in on that for our, our kids. And I think social media, I, I think there's a role for state governments to play here. Laboratories of democracy. Yep. Indeed. Yeah. Good one. Okay. Uh, let's flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss Donald Trump's first rally of the 2024 cycle in Waco, Texas, um, which I watched all of last night. We're worried about Ron. <sighs> it's the first one I've watched since the um, Birmingham um, rally, which was very, very dark. Uh, okay. Where can everybody find you uh, on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter, maybe soon to lose my blue check mark. Ah, they're taking them away? <laughs> Apparently. Oh, okay. At Lucy M. Caldwell. I never bothered trying to get a blue check mark. Uh, <laughs> I feel really good about that decision now. <laughs> uh, and Mastodon? No? Are you doing Mastodon? I am playing I, around with I, it. I don't remember my handle. So <laughs> I guess the answer is not really. Okay. Ask me, ask me next time. Okay. <laughs> Frank, are you still um, unfindable? Yeah, and I don't. Don't we think we okay. can get to the point where this, we just don't ask this question of me, and then it's, yeah, it yeah, saves probably. everybody some time? <laughs> yeah. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.